everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, the video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host, I'm recording on a Sunday evening, unusually. It is Sunday the 26th of November, this episode is a little bit late, um, and not not the usual kind of episode that, that I do here for Gaming in the Wild, but... I did want to get an episode out just to keep the rhythm up, keep the momentum up, give you something to listen to. Um, the reason that I didn't do a usual episode this week is actually because I've been bouncing between a bunch of games. You know, sometimes you try out a lot, nothing quite sticks. Maybe you get a little bit less game time than usual. Um, that happened to me this week. It was a really busy week. But I did bounce between a few things. I had planned to do a review episode about Sludge Life 2. Uh, but I didn't get to the end of the game, um, so I'm going to save it for next week and have decided instead... I'll talk a little bit about Sludge Life 2, but I've decided to go through a couple of games that I glanced off this week. Um, a couple that were firm bounces off, a couple that were intriguing, and one demo that actually really did capture my attention. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Teardown, the new voxel-based destruction sim that was added to the PlayStation Plus lineup this week and came out on the consoles after a long early access period. I'm going to talk a little bit about Coral Island, a new farming sim that came to Game Pass. A little bit about Worldless, a Metroidvania that I dipped into the demo of. And finally, I will run through the demo for the game 1000 Times Resist, uh, which I really, really enjoyed this, this week and I think there's a lot of very interesting stuff in there. Um, but just to start off with some Sludge Life 2 impressions, um, I don't know if you guys know this game. Um, it is a sequel. I played Sludge Life 1 back in 2021. It made my Games of the Year mentions that year, alongside games like Death Store and Psychonauts 2. It was a very good year um, for such good games to be in the honourable mentions just below the top 10. Um, but Sludge Life made it in there. Sludge Life was a very unusual game. It's a, a 3D exploration and parkour game. Uh, with sort of vector graphics looking um, lines that have a very strong style to them. It's about tagging. Um, it's about exploring some urban decay with this very heavily stylized, almost cartoonish 3D look to it and a really stunning soundtrack by Dose One. I think Sludge Life was an underrated game. Um, the movement in that game feels absolutely fantastic as you uh, mantle onto surfaces, as you climb up rickety scaffolds. You use your camera to look around this uh, devastated urban environment, um, finding tagging spots, and then you have to parkour your way up to the tagging spots. You hit the button to spray and do some graffiti there and tag. Um, you get more points the more tagging that you do. And as you walk around the world, uh, you meet an awful lot of very strange characters in this... I would say it's like the wreckage of capitalism, basically. You'll meet workers who are disenfranchised, who will talk shit about the companies that employ them. You will meet um, just waifs and strays in the streets um, that are on all kinds of drugs with big buggy eyes. It's a very cynical game in some ways, um, and it has a very puerile sense of humour. There's a lot of scatological humour and Beavis and Butthead-esque humour. Um, and it's not the kind of game that you might expect me to like, or it's not the kind of game that I might expect myself to like, but something about Sludge Life really captivated me. I think it was the, the singular aesthetic of the whole thing. It has a really cool visual style. 
For example, when you hit pause to go into the settings or the options, you will get this um, old-fashioned computer desktop and a mouse pointer that you use to open the settings, open up your inventory. It's this really cool way of presenting um, an inventory screen that actually just has atmosphere and care and thought and creativity put into it. And every aspect of Sludge Life seemed to me to be creative, directed, and sparky. I really, really loved the game. I loved the fluid movement. I loved the cynical, hard-bitten game world and the silly humor of it, too. Um, and the, the gameplay loop is just very, very good. And Sludge Life 2 is an absolutely direct sequel. It does everything that I liked about Sludge Life, uh, but even better. So I dipped into it. I played an hour of it. It's a pretty short game. It's only a couple hours long. Um, but as soon as I picked it up, in this week when I'd been bouncing between games, struggling to find something to latch onto um, and to do a podcast about, Sludge Life 2, I picked it up, fired it up, and before I knew it, an hour had passed, and I had enjoyed every single second of it. It's a really, really good game. I think I'm going to circle back to that one next week and do a full episode about it. If you have not played the original Sludge Life, it is available on all of the consoles, and I really, really recommend it, even if you just stick it on your wish list and pick it up on sale sometime. Um, recommended. Sludge Life 2 is currently only on PC, so I played it on the ROG Ally. I love to get some use out of that thing, and it was a really good fit for the handheld screen too. Um, I really, really like the Sludge Life games, um, and Sludge Life 2 is just a, a really good continuation of the original. It's just more, more Sludge Life, more of the intricate level designs, more of the smooth parkour, more of the funny dialogue. Um, so I've had a great time with that one too. Um, one of the other games that I tried out this week was Teardown. Um, you may have heard about this one. It's been doing the rounds for quite a while. It had a long early access period. Um, Teardown is a voxel-based destruction sim. Uh, voxels being little square blocks like a 3D pixel. Um, and the whole world is built out of them. And we have seen, I mean, Minecraft obviously is the big voxel game as a visual reference point, but we've seen some visually impressive voxel games. Like I think of The Tourist often, um, if you've played The Tourist, it's a voxel game in which you do puzzles, you explore islands, but it, it elevates the way that voxels look. Like, it has depth of field to add a cinematic flair to it. It has really nice lighting effects, so even though it's just a very squared-off, blocky environment, the light catches the voxels really nice. And I think of The Tourist as a high watermark for how good voxel games can look. Um, until Teardown, I think this might be a new visual high watermark for voxel games. It has absolutely lovely lighting effects. Um, it has wonderful water slushing around that you can swim through. Um, it has weather effects. Um, so if there is rain, you can see the uh, the flecks of rain passing street lamps and things like that and fog. It's a very, very cool looking game. Um, very, very well presented. I only played a couple of missions of this one, um, but I did really enjoy it. And what you do in Teardown, and the thing that separates it, I think, from other voxel games, is that you can knock stuff down. It is a destruction sim. So if you come up to, for example, in your first mission, um, you are charged with knocking down a derelict house. So you get there at night. It's a, it's a covert job. Um, and you only have a hammer at the start. So you go up to the house, you sneak over to the house, and you start battering away at it with the hammer, and the voxels start to just fly off it. Um, it's an extremely destructible environment. Um, and as you are hammering away, smashing the bricks, 
making big dents in this house, I started to realize I was I was looking at the structure of the house, trying to identify the the weak points or the supporting structures, because the challenge was to reduce it to a low, low height. If it's a 20 meter house, you have to get it down below a few meters tall. So you have to take down the roof. You have to break the, the spine of the house kind of. And so you start kind of planning your way through this. Um, but there was a certain point in that first mission when I was just sledgehammering away at the house, trying to take out the supporting structures, where I found a tough one. It was like a large concrete chimney, um, and the hammer wasn't doing much damage. So I started scouting the area a little bit and found some explosive gas canisters nearby. I started throwing those at that chimney, that troublesome chimney that was keeping the roof up. And they put some dents in it, but not quite enough. So I looked even further afield and found some JCB diggers in the area. And you can get into them, you can drive them. And I absolutely devastated the house with the JCB and was very, very absorbed in doing it. There is something so satisfying about such a highly destructible environment. Um, it feels very interactive. I mean, a lot of the time we walk through beautiful environments and games, but we can't really affect them that much. Um, and so it's a really refreshing change of pace to feel that freedom in Teardown. We can really get creative where they've made a, a sandbox for you with all kinds of destruction tools that you can find, that you can employ in different ways. And I get the feeling that as the game progresses, there are going to be lots of um, moments for creativity, for moments of discovery, for using these destruction tools in interesting ways, for expanding your repertoire of different tools that you can use to complete these missions. I've also heard a couple of other people talking about this who have played a little more than I have, and they say that the missions get more complex, um, that there are heist-style missions, that there are multi-stage missions where you're having to use all of your tools and create sequences of events to take down generators, etc., to break into structures, get past security measures. So there's a heist element to it as well. Uh, but I really enjoyed the little time that I spent with Teardown. If you do have PlayStation Plus, it is available there. It's a very strong addition to PlayStation Plus. I love it when PlayStation Plus gets day one releases because I really want to see that service become a, a genuine uh, Game Pass for PlayStation. Um, it's one of the only games that has been a day one release there, but it's a really, really strong one. That's Teardown. And speaking of Game Pass, I do have one game to briefly mention. It's just something that I've played. It was called Coral Island. It is a farming game. Um, there are a lot of farming games around right now. And I think that the, the sheer amount of farming games and farming-related games and life sims and village sims um, is making it a pretty clogged scene right now. There are so many of these games around. I think it's getting to the point where it's getting difficult to find uh, unique characteristics in them. They're starting to turn into a bit of a muddy mass to me. I guess if you are a farming game fan, if life sims and farming games are your cup of tea, you are absolutely spoiled for choice right now and eating well. Um, possibly it's off the back of the success of Stardew Valley. You know, people want a bit of that, and so they're trying to put their own spin on the genre. Um, but I decided to try out Coral Island, and... It starts with a character creator, um, and it starts with that that very um, familiar scenario where you arrive on an island, you are given a farmhouse to live in, it's nothing but four walls, and a wooden floor, a roof and a bed, and you know what the loop is for these games, you know that you are going to be growing crops, you're going to be selling them, you're going to be talking to locals and maybe doing different kinds of missions for them. Um, outside of your house, there is a huge overgrown rocky field with trees and boulders and logs that you're going to be using your tools to clear. 
In Stardew Valley, it's a pretty small field that you begin with. Um, in this game, it's a huge field. And it gave me a little bit of um, anxiety seeing this huge field. I was like, oh my god, am I really going to be spending all of my, my gaming hours knocking down these boulders and chopping up these logs and banking all of these resources? It made me feel tired. And I think that for a farming game in a very crowded field, uh, no pun intended, you have to stand out. Um, this game didn't do much to stand out for me. Um, the, the dialogue was not witty or sparkling. It was very, very plain. Um, the visual style is very, very plain. Um, I was invited to go and buy blueprints to build things at the village, and I just kind of felt the will to play just draining out of my body in the opening half hour of this game, and that is all that I played of it. I, I couldn't discern any unique personality in this one. I think that I have played quite a bit of Stardew. I mean, not as much as many people, but I did get into it, and I did enjoy the loop. I did enjoy growing my plants, going into town, selling them, and talking to people, having the affinity system, and getting closer with friends. But I felt that Stardew had um, a charm to it. There was something there. There was some kind of personality to the world that made me want to continue. Um, Coral Island did not have that. Um, I couldn't discern any unique personality to this one. I think that for people who whose gaming happy place is clearing fields and chopping plants and banking resources and building out your world and curating your house and working towards that next goal of the piece of furniture you want or the the paint job that you want or to you know get sprinklers for your field and you really really like that loop and find it comforting it is another one of those for you to try uh, but this one was really not for me and um, without any real hook to it um, i just saw the time sink coming towards me like you know like being strapped down on train tracks and thought yeah, not this time. So I just quietly uninstalled Coral Island. Um, that one was a no for me. And another game that I tried that's in a little bit of a similar boat, actually, um, although not quite as um, bereft of inspiration as Coral Island, uh, was a Metroidvania called Worldless. Um, I have seen people chatting about this one on Twitter. The Metroidvania fans are into this one. It's been recommended in the Discord as well. Um, it's quite an interesting-looking Metroidvania, this one. Your character is actually just a few little circles of light um, where your hands or feet might be, where your head or torso might be, and they're not connected, but as you run, the dots animate like a run cycle, so it does look like your little character has some personhood to them. Um, and the colour scheme is really cool too, so you are made out of points of light, um, and the whole world is this inky, purpley, blue, midnight kind of palette. Um, and as you run across it, there are lots of little light sources, there are lots of plants that move as you run past. Um, and it is a basic meat and potatoes metroidvania. There is platforming, there is dashing, there is an air dash. You'll pick up abilities um, pretty rapidly, which I always like in a metroidvania. I think um, unless you are Hollow Knight, um, spacing out the upgrades too much can lead to a certain kind of inertia. So I do like it when a Metroidvania gives you some tools on a pretty regular cadence to make you feel like you are growing out your repertoire of moves. Um, there was a nice ability that you jump and you can use an echo to make uh, platforms appear under your feet at certain points during a jump. So you jump, you echo, platform appears under your feet, you do it again. It's like It does feel good to navigate gaps that way. Um, it also has turn-based combat, this one, which is an interesting addition. So when you encounter enemies, you will flash into a turn-based system uh, with real-time elements to it. Um, you have to time your button presses to block 
um, you have to identify which button you're going to need to press to block based on the tells that the enemy gives you. A little bit of a Final Fantasy style turn-based system here. Um, but I found the timings and the signals a little bit hard to grasp on this one. Um, I felt that it was a little under-tutorialized, like it was explained very quickly, and then you're expected to just sink or swim. And I ended up kind of doggy paddling through combat, not really feeling like I was um, excelling at it, but I was scraping through it. Um, the game also has a bit of a confusing map that I found. It's like um, one of those maps that doesn't have rooms drawn onto it with points of interest on it. It was more like a, a like a tube system map of just lines. And as I was looking at it, moving through this world, moving through caves um, towards some kind of target. But then when I looked at the map, the map was a little bit too abstracted from the world that I was moving through. And so I couldn't quite overlay it. It didn't quite make sense to me as a representation of the space. That's a, a big no-no in a Metroidvania for me. I think you have to, if you're going to be backtracking for a huge world, you have to be able to easily orientate yourself in that world using the map. So I think a good map is a Metroidvania essential, especially if you're spending tens of hours staring at it, uh, referring to it, um, looking for openings that you may have missed. Uh, Hollow Knight was very, very good at this. Um, if you come to a dead end in Hollow Knight, you can comb over that map and look for little openings in the walls that will uh, give you your way forward in that classic Metroid style. Um, so that was a, the turn-based combat didn't really hit, the map didn't really hit, and the, the platforming in Worldless, whilst serviceable, um, wasn't gripping. But it does have a very cool atmosphere. Um, I would say that overall it felt a little unfocused to me, this game. Um, there's a little bit too much potential for confusion in the mixture here. It has like shades of gris to it as well in its simplicity, but um, the, the true simplicity of gris or Gree, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, um, meant that you couldn't really get lost in that game. You always knew where you were going. And so moving through a beautiful world without getting lost and just having puzzles in front of you that you have to solve felt kind of good in that game. In this game, it's like Gris, but there's also potential to be lost. And so if you have this quite slow movement speed, um, that can be a problem. And then again, it doesn't really have the rigor or depth for it to be a Hollow Knight-style pinpoint Metroidvania. So I found it was kind of caught between stools of being a simple, beautiful platformer like Gris and being a truly deep and accomplished uh, Metroidvania of the Hollow Knight school. It was floating somewhere in the middle there. Um, it didn't really assert its own identity to me as a gameplay experience, and I found it a bit muddled. Um, I only played the demo of Worldless, and I don't think I'll be taking the dive on the full game. Um, but I will say that if you are a Metroidvania fan, who is dying for a new game. Um, people who really love Metroidvanias are really enjoying Worldless, so even though I bounced off this one, if you're a fan of the genre, it's definitely worth at least trying the demo to form your own opinion about this one. That was Worldless. And the final game that I'm going to talk about in this short little uh, grab bag episode of bits and bobs that I played over the last week is A Thousand Times Resist. Um, there's a reason I'm putting this one last. This was definitely the best thing that I played this week. Um, it is only a demo. Um, the demo came out in Steam Next Fest a few months ago. I've had it sitting there waiting to play. Um, this one has an interesting atmosphere to it. Um, there is a trailer for it that you can see uh, for 1000 times resist um, that really grabbed me actually. It has a little bit of that Signalis style mystery to it. It's a, a sci-fi adventure game. A pretty unconventional one, I would say. Um, it's developed by Sunset Visitor. 
It is penciled for quarter one of next year, and it's published by fellow traveller who tend to put out pretty good stuff. Uh, Citizen Sleeper famously came out by a fellow traveller. Um, the Pale Beyond, um, they do good work. They put out good games. Um, so that's another good sign for 1,000 Times Resist. Um, but in this game, you play as a humanoid robot body um, containing an artificial consciousness, seemingly. It's all quite mysterious at the start. And who you are and what is happening in the world that you're going to explore is opaque but in a way that is dreamy and interesting. It feels like you are floating into a dream playing this one in a way that I really, really enjoyed it. It got me right off the bat, this one, something about it. Um, but the humanoid that you're playing at, the robot AI, is seemingly based on a real human from the distant past called Iris. Um, and in the game, as this humanoid that, that seems to know that it is based on a person. I don't know. It's it's only the demo, so the, the story didn't snap into focus for me quite yet. I'm still in the stage of the, the mystery part of it. Um, but you're exploring a dark, ruined high school at the start of this game. It is in the far future. Um, the power has gone down. Um, it is super, super dark, and it is disused. There is no one there, really, apart from a few people dotted around that I will get to. It's very, very eerie. Um, and as you are exploring this school, you will notice that some of the, the classrooms have been barricaded. Um, it seems that something bad has gone down here. Um, it uses light very well um, as well. So as you are exploring an abandoned high school, it's maybe a little bit of that, that the, the chills that you might get remembering Silent Hill or Silent Hill 2, whichever one it was, we were exploring a school. Um, but as you are walking around, um, you can read posters on the walls. They start to give you a little bit of context. Uh, you can explore these empty classrooms and find things like books to look at, uh, class registers, objects that you might need. Um, and it starts to slowly fill in the blanks, but in a very roundabout kind of way. Like it's not giving up its mystery right off the bat. And as you're walking around, you will also meet humans that are wearing hazmat suits. Uh, where the face play is, there is a glowing red light that casts light. So they're these quite eerie figures, and they're just standing around listlessly, here and there. Um, and when you talk to them, um, they seem to speak in, in kind of hopeless, beaten down riddles, and memories, and poetry. Um, and they seem to be skeptical of what you are. Um, they know more than you about who you are. Um, the character that you have has got this naive quality to them um, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and I, I liked the the heavy, heavy vibes that this game brought. I liked that these people seemed very resigned. They seemed very resigned to the idea that humanity in this age that you were playing in is kind of done, that some kind of battle has been lost. They seem to see the end coming. Um, and you get the sense, perhaps, that Iris is... Maybe I'm extrapolating and theorizing here, but maybe Iris is a machine built to embody someone significant from the past to try and fix a problem. Um, but it seems like these humans think that this effort has failed already. They are very, very despondent. And the atmosphere, it kind of got to me a little bit, actually. I was feeling a lot playing this game um, and really enjoying the kind of the melancholic, emotional atmosphere that it's summoned up. 
I should say that it's like um, it's got a bit of the Resident Evils in terms of what the camera is doing. Sometimes it's isometric and you're running down corridors. Sometimes when you come into a room, it will snap to a horizontal camera. Um, so it's one of those that has a changing camera angle based on the situation. Um, and as you continue exploring the school, you do find those barricaded classrooms. You do find that the, the school was seemingly repurposed into a kind of a desperate emergency hospital situation. I mean, as you're walking around, you start to look at the posters and you learn of an epidemic. Um, you learn that you'll see these health notices that are still pinned to the walls all of these years later. And you're walking through the wreckage of what seems to be an epidemic. Um, there are some whispers that this epidemic came after what's something that sounds like an invasive force arrived, whether it was supernatural, whether it was alien, um, some kind of invasion took place that changed human society. Um, and you're walking through the wreckage of it now. Um, and most of human society seems to have been wiped out in whatever whatever happened. I guess maybe it's a post-pandemic video game. Um, it would track. If they started three years ago, then it was perhaps a response to what was going on in COVID, like a bleak sci-fi envisioning of uh, the, the, the trauma that we all went through with that. Um, but there is like a little turning point in the demo where the game opens out a little bit. After exploring the school, um, getting a lot of colour text, and starting to piece together these clues, the start of the mystery in your mind, you get to the roof, and this is where things get really weird. Uh, once you finally find your way to the roof, you find a portrait, uh, a framed photograph of a girl called Zhao, um, and it's in a ring of candles. Uh, when you interact with this little portrait, um, Zhao speaks to you uh, fondly, familiarly. I couldn't tell if this was... I couldn't tell what this was. I don't know where Zhao was speaking to you from, if it's another AI, if it's a voice in your head, if it's a voice from the past. Very, very spooky, very, very cool. And, and Zhao gives you an extra ability, the ability to switch back and forth in time um, within this either world or simulation. I didn't quite piece together what it was. Um, to a moment in the past where you could look for important clues to try and continue piecing together what's going on in this world. Um, and we're given the mission of finding instances of the actual Zhao uh, back in the past. Um, and I really enjoyed this mechanic, actually, because as we were walking through this broken down school, wondering what happened, suddenly you can use the shoulder buttons to flip back in time. So there are two time periods that become available to you. Uh, one is the present day, which is the wrecked school. And one is a day in the distant past that seems to be a significant day a day of graduation, the day of a high school dance, um, and the day that the pandemic perhaps turned a corner, um, really took off and started to gather f speed and led to the epidemic that we are seeing the results of way later into the future. And so you can flip back and forward between this dark, broken down school. For example, you walk into a classroom, broken down. There's one sad person there with their red light shining out of their visor. If you flip back in time, suddenly you are in a brightly lit school with pupils in it, sitting at their desks, doing work, doing homework, uh, talking to each other, doing all of the usual school things. Um, there are instances of bullying, there are instances of popularity contest type stuff, cliques. And you walk around this uh, far past school and it really, really brings into focus the devastation of your first route of the school to see it with all of these students in it still, uh, with teachers. And when you go into the past and walk around, the students seem to recognize you. They see you as a fellow pupil. 
um, they refer to you as Iris. They think you are Iris. They do not know that you are a simulation of Iris from the future. But you don't recognize them um, as the simulation. So you get these strange one-sided conversations where people are talking to Iris as if they know Iris, and Iris is responding in this, this cold, robotic voice that somehow still contains strains of empathy because Iris knows what is about to come um, and the pupils do not. So we re-explore the school in the demo um, and you start to use the time switching to solve simple puzzles. For example, a room that was barricaded in the future, you can switch back to the old school and the door is open, walk inside, um, switch back again to the future and you are now in the locked room. So you can use that little time switching ability to explore rooms that were closed to you. Um, and we re-explore the school again. We're able to get into all of the rooms that we weren't before. Um, and the time switching is used to give you these simple puzzles, um, but it also, every time you switch in a significant place, it is used to tell these beautiful miniature stories um, that really blew my mind, actually. I was so impressed with the writing here. For example, when you were in the art room, um, in the past, in the brightly lit past, we see a girl pupil and she's painting a portrait of a schoolboy. You can talk to them both. The boy says he's been standing there for hours and he's exhausted, but that he's waiting for this girl to notice him. And even though she is looking at him intently, even though she is rendering him in a painting, she's not really seeing him and he feels sad about it. So we go over and talk to the girl. Um, and she asks for advice. She's like, what do you think this portrait is missing? And, and based on what you've just heard, you know that she's not really seeing him. So you are able to choose from a dialogue menu and to say, um, you're not really looking, you're not really seeing him. You have to really see who he is as well as just rendering his form. And she thanks you for that advice. Um, and it's a very heartfelt little moment. But then when you flip back to the future, all of the pupils are gone, um, presumably dead, um, and you see that the portrait is still there, and then you get to see the finished work. So Iris can walk over to that painting, click on it, and then she can respond to how that played out, how that portrait played out all those years ago. With all of that sort of melancholia and the knowledge that you've just gotten from a small interaction, it was really lyrical, really sad, and it really got me. And that's just one example. There were actually many of those dotted throughout the school, so this contrast of the past um, meeting people these school children back in the day flipping into the future and seeing these resonant echoes in this ruined environment far on after a pandemic that has wiped everyone out. Um, I found it to be very affecting, very, very cool. And some of those locked rooms also contain further information. We learn more about the epidemic. Um, we, there are posters around talking about an outbreak. Um, the symptom of this disease is to cry. And it seems that people, once they start crying, it's like... Um, like if you have COVID, if you if you were walking around during COVID and you heard someone with a hacking cough nearby, your eyes flash to them. Suddenly you worry if you have breathed in COVID, if you've caught COVID, there's a paranoia that went with it. And in this game, the first symptom of the disease is crying. So people are being hypervigilant when it comes to seeing other people crying. Because what happens with this one is that you get this disease, you start to cry, and then you cannot stop crying and you cry until you die, basically. That's the disease. Um, we meet teachers who are murmuring about this disease, who seem to know that something big is coming. Um, the whole game is tinged with a very powerful sadness. And the story of Iris and Zhao unfolds. Um, Iris was a second-generation American-Chinese student. That is you. 
uh, you are the AI based on Iris. And we meet Zhao back in the day, who was a, a Chinese immigrant who has moved to America and is struggling with that. Um, and we learn that Iris and Zhao were friends. Uh, we learn that it had a strange dynamic to it, that Zhao was quite enamored with Iris and clinging onto her almost like a safety raft, almost desperately, um, in an almost fixated, crushing way, like lots of trauma packed into that little um, fascination with Iris. And that Iris was actually very cool and cold about this, um, that Zhao, being around Zhao, drew attention to Iris's otherness in a way that made Iris uncomfortable. So it also has all of this um, Chinese or um, Asian immigrant experience packed into the story too. Um, Zhao and Iris's relationship ended badly. Um, and we learn that there is something significant about this, this uh, adolescent relationship that perhaps um, impacted on the progress of the pandemic. And maybe uh, by piecing it back together, we can find out exactly what this all means, what significance Zhao has to the story, um, what you are exactly, and all of that stuff. There is talk of the all-mother, so you imagine that there is some bigger AI and a sisterhood of AIs based on people from the past. So only a working theory here, but if there is an all-mother who has created AI representations of school children from the past trying to piece together a mystery, maybe that these people became researchers, maybe there is lost knowledge that you are visiting simulations of the past to try and reassemble, to try and fix things. Maybe it's something like that. Just a working theory. Um, there is one more element to the game also. There are these little sections where you come into a super, super dreamy school where gravity is kind of turned off. And in this one, you use a, a grapple mechanic to cross wide open spaces. Uh, you have to navigate your way across, um, find latch points. And then you will get to a significant moment where Iris and Zhao will have some kind of conversation. Maybe it's a warm moment. Maybe it's a, a moment of conflict. And so the whole thing coheres into a very dreamy experience, very melancholic, dreamy, intriguing sci-fi experience. It's only about a half-hour demo, um, but I was absolutely intrigued by it. Um, I love that it has shades of Isaac Asimov, shades of Near, Near Automata, um, Ghost Song, another game about a, a kind of automaton that is speaking in plaintive tones and almost searching for its identity. It also has very uneasy vibes, like the movie Ex Machina, if you've seen that one. And it borders on horror, but not splatter horror, um, not like being attacked by monsters kind of thing, but more like psychological horror, a creeping feeling of everything being wrong that I found in this case to be very affecting, actually. Um, there were a couple of bugs, a couple of little moments of jank here and there, but it is a demo, um, so it seems unfair to comb through those and call them out now. Uh, but the game is coming out in uh, quarter one of 2024. Um, so that's my little recommendation for the demo. It's on PC only at the minute, but you can find it on the Steam storefront. That was 1000 times resist. <laughs> So only a short episode this week, just a little trundle through a few games that I've been playing. I hope you enjoyed hearing about them. Um, I've been really loving what I've played of Sludge Life 2, and I think I'm going to get back to that game um, right after I finish recording, play a little more, and hopefully give you a full review next week. Um, also Teardown, I enjoyed that one. If you're playing on, a, if you have PlayStation Plus, you can look it up. Coral Island, maybe only for the farming fans. Um, Worldless, 
maybe only for the Metroidvania fans, but 1,000 Times Resist is a game that I would recommend to to anyone that likes that kind of melancholic sci-fi mystery that I'm describing. So look that one up, give it a try, give it a, a wish list if you like what you play. Um, but that's all for this week. I'd like to say one thank you to Steve. Um, thank you very much to Steve for signing up for the Gaming in the Wild Patreon at the $3 tier. Um, that's $3 a month that goes straight back into the podcast into games, into the music that I use, into improving equipment and all of that kind of thing. Um, If you would like to support this podcast and become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. There will be a link in the description that you can follow. Um, As a reward for signing up, you get access to 11 bonus episodes, including radio shows, video game music shows, spoiler casts. There's a spoiler cast for the Stanley Parable in there, for example. Um, and I have more episodes planned in the future for the bonus episodes. You also get invited to the show's patron-only Discord, which has just a super, super healthy little online community of people talking about games away from all of the noise and fury and horror of um, gamer Twitter and gamer social media, which is going up in flames. So if you are someone that enjoys the kind of games that I talk about on this show and would like somewhere to talk about them in peace with other like-minded, pleasant people, uh, come join that Patreon Discord. It's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild if you're interested in that. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll be back next week with another one. Uh, take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now.